Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and I'm here today with Dr. Nico Slade to discuss his new book, Lord Cornwallis is Dead, The Struggle for Democracy in the United States and India. Dr. Slate looks at the complicated idea of democracy in both countries, on the one hand to examine their own roles in making visible a certain kind of democracy, and on the other hand to highlight ways that their shared histories illuminate present-day struggles for democracy and equality. Hello and welcome back to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zeb Larson, and I'm here today with Dr. Nico Slade to discuss his new book, Lord Cornwallis is Dead, The Struggle for Democracy in the United States and India. Dr. Slate looks at the complicated idea of democracy in both countries, on the one hand to examine their own roles in making visible a certain kind of democracy, and on the other hand to highlight ways that their shared histories illuminate present-day struggles for democracy and equality. Dr. Slate, uh, welcome to the New Books Network. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, first, Seb, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I am a historian of the United States and India, uh, and I'm kind of surprised on all fronts. First of all, I didn't expect to be a historian. I hated history in high school, I think, just because, like so many others, I didn't understand what it was. thought it was just memorizing dates and facts. And then even when I decided to become a historian, when I applied to graduate school, I didn't have any idea that I would end up studying the things I do. That came about really as a as a surprise, like so much in life. So what specifically brought you to this subject then? It started with a seminar paper that I wrote my first year in graduate school. I needed a topic. I didn't know what I was going to write about. And so I did what most graduate students do, which is I procrastinated. <laughs> uh, eventually, you know, when the time came, uh, a thought struck me, which is I actually had a memory of a, of a cross-country trip I had taken in high school with my mother and my older brother. And we had stopped at the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. And there was an exhibit there on George Washington Carver, the famous African-American scientist. And the part of the exhibit that, for whatever reason, stuck in my brain was that Carver had some interaction with Gandhi. Now, this came back to me. I don't know why. And I thought, well, I wonder if anyone had written about that. It seems like an interesting thing. And I looked into it and sure enough found that, in fact, uh, Carver and Gandhi had this remarkably rich mutual uh, appreciation. So, you know, Carver, like many people in that day, held Gandhi in high esteem. But more interesting was the fact that Gandhi saw Carver as a genius and was fascinated with his work and sent him notes and sent someone to ask Carver for a special diet. So I got pulled into this Carver-Gandhi relationship. And then I thought, well, what did other leading South Asian figures think of African-Americans and vice versa? And that then became my dissertation and my first book, which looks at the history of connections between African-American and South Asian freedom struggles, the struggles against racism, against imperialism, against casteism. Uh, and that that's really how I came to do the kind of work I do today is it just it opened up into this very broad and deep interest in in these two massive, massively complicated countries, India and the United States, and the way that they've long been connected. Would you say this book is sort of an extension um, of your earlier work then, particularly your first book? It's 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 an extension on a very large scale. So my my first <laughs> book looks specifically at the links in the struggle against racism, links between African Americans and South Asians, and it was primarily a story of the 20th century. So a little bit in my first book on the 19th. This current book, Lord Cornwallis is Dead, is much more ambitious in terms of scope and scale. So it starts, as you know, really in the 17th century. Um, there's a good bit in there on 18th century, a lot on the 19th century, and then also on the 20th. So it, it's a much longer story. And it also has many more different uh, facets and characters and actors. This book actually uh, grew out of a course that I have taught for many years 
on the long history of connections between the U.S. and India. And you know, one of the great things about being a teacher is that every time you teach a course, students ask questions that you don't expect. They bring in ideas that you hadn't thought of before. And so your own knowledge base is forced to grow and expand over time. And it just became a richer and richer and richer subject for me. And so when I, I first sat down to write the book, actually, it was quite daunting. Uh, how am I ever going to get this all together? And what I realized early on is that I needed to have a focus. And the focus very quickly emerged as democracy. So what the, what the book tries to do is to take this incredibly rich and variegated story that has so many different actors and moments in time and show how all of it intersects with the history of democracy. Uh, you know, a history that has shaped both countries and, and in which, in fact, I'd say both countries have played a very role in shaping the history of democracy. Mm. So let's let's start working through the book. Um, and you you begin by noting that Indian is this powerfully loaded term because at, just at its most basic level, it has two very different connotations in the United States. So tell us how you unpack that term. It's true. And, you know, many South Asian Americans will lament that uh, complexity because, of course, if you're growing up in certain parts of the country and you say that you're Indian, it can cause tremendous confusion or sadly, in many cases, jokes and taunting of one kind or another. Uh, and th that confusion has actually long been a source of problems, but also a source of potential power. So the, that particular chapter in the book starts with, I think, one of the most fascinating anecdotes that I came across when researching this book. You know, it, it's, uh, it's 1791. Um, George Washington's official agent, a man named Tim Timothy Pickering, is in this little frontier town uh, at that point called Newtown, New York. And he's there with a very peculiar mission. He's there to talk to the people he called Indians about the country known as India. Uh, and he does this on purpose. So what he does is he talks to the leaders of several Native American communities that um, we might all link up under the banner of the Iroquois Confederacy, but they, many of them, these communities had their own names for themselves, you know, the Mohawk, the Seneca, the Tuscarora, etc. Pickering doesn't want to recognize that complexity. He wants to label them all Indians and then use that term to build this linguistic bridge with India itself. Uh, and he does it in order to say, uh, and I think the quote is something like he says, that there are many nations of Indians who have dark skins, black hair, and black eyes like you. But in that far distant country, India, those Indians are, you know, farmers and spinners and weavers. They're civilized people, as Pickering saw them. And he hoped his audience would then be inspired to become more civilized themselves. So it's, it's a really interesting moment in time because we tend to see you know, white Americans of that era as being equally disdainful of all non-white peoples. But that kind of, car, you know, blanket racism uh, isn't fully developed at that point in 1791. So someone like Timothy Pickering actually sees India as a, quite a civilized country because of its, uh, you know, economic prowess in one form or another. And there's this really rich trade between, uh, you know, places like Salem and other, you know, New England towns and India you know, trade in all sorts of fancy merchandise that Indians are producing. So India at that point in time in the American consciousness is actually a civilized country. And he's hoping that the Indians he's dealing with will then learn from that. It's, it's a remarkable moment. And it really, for me anyway, encapsulates the way that these terms become agents of power. Uh, precisely because of their complexity, they can be used and I think often, quite frankly, misused in order to try to shape the way people see themselves and how they interact with others. Mm. And it's interesting to me, you end the book by discussing the idea of model minority and how many South Asians fit into that. And yet at the beginning of the country, here they are doing apparently the same thing. So how does the early United States, the newly independent United States, engage with India, which is under growing British domination? It's, uh, it, it's, it's really a fascinating moment in time because... Uh, in some ways, the early United States is on par with India, right? Uh, having recently been itself a British colony, you would think that Americans would have strong sympathies for those Indians that were also chafing under imperial rule. Um, you know, the, the very title of my book, Lord Cornwallis is Dead, refers, of course, 
to the, the famous figure in American history who many Americans won't know, leaves his defeat at the hands of George Washington to go to India to become a, an important uh, political figure there. Right, so that you, there's this moment in time in which the British Empire directly links the United States and India, and yet you find that many Americans in that day were uh, less inclined to see themselves as somehow akin to Indians and more uh, more um, tempted to see themselves as akin to um, the the British themselves, and that, that has a lot to do with race, of course. You know, when a white American showed up in colonial India, um, the fact that they were American could cause trouble. You know, so I talk, for example, about these four young uh, missionaries who come to India in 1812, right? It's a terrible time to be an American in, in, in a British territory, uh, right? And they have trouble getting in, as in fact, many American missionaries did, uh, had trouble with the British Raj. But in general, Americans fared quite well in in India because of course India was a very racially demarcated society and so even though uh, you know there there wasn't a, a lot of love right away between you know King George and and, and his former subjects um, very quickly the sort of prerogatives of race come to the forefront and you find that Americans are able for example to stay in the white parts of colonial Indian cities or go to hospitals that are reserved for so-called Europeans. Uh, race, very, race very quickly brings together, you know, the, the, the 13 colonies mm. with, you know, their former imperial rulers. And then on the flip side of that, how are Indians from South Asia looking at the United States? How are they engaging with the United States, both as visitors and as migrants? What's going on there? Well, I'm glad you actually distinguish between visitors and migrants, because I think the first big thing to recognize is that there never was and never has been just one South Asian or Indian American community. Uh, it's always been incredibly varied. And that's you know, probably the core of this book is looking at the ways in which these different streams of people from India to the United States interacted and intersected in very, very different ways. Uh, just look at the cover image, right? I mean, the, the cover of the book is um, perhaps one of the most influential uh, of Indian American figures, Bhagat Singh Thind. And he's famous for his efforts to claim the legal status of whiteness, which was at that point in time necessary to gain American citizenship. Uh, and he is successful, right? Um, the photo that's on the cover is him in his World War One. Uh, I'm looking at it now. It's, I, I just love this photo. He's, you know, in his World War One costume, um, looking, you know, the the fierce warrior, and he's able to use his service to the country actually to to argue successfully that he should be seen as white and thus be able to become a naturalized U.S. citizen. He's successful until the case reaches the Supreme Court, and then very famously, the Supreme Court rules that no, in fact, even though scientists at that time might have seen some Indians as being white. Even though a figure like Bhagat Singh Thind had served the country as a as a, as as a soldier, um, he was not white as the common man saw him, and thus he was not eligible for citizenship. Well, if you look at that case, what you see is, in some ways, the culmination of a long struggle of Indian Americans on the west coast of the United States to gain um, a, official status and to gain a safe haven. In the face of tremendous racism, you know, there's persistent racism targeted against um, Indians on the West Coast as Indians. You know, so Bhagat Singh Thind in his photo, he's wearing his turban, he has his beard. These are things that are targeted explicitly in those days in racist cartoons, in in race riots in places like Bellingham, Washington. There's tremendous animus against Indians, which is part of this larger animus against people from Asia. Right? You know, m most people grow up, they learn about the Chinese Exclusion Act at some point. But there was a much more widespread anti-Asian bias on the West Coast. Now, contrast that with the treatment that Indians get on the East Coast, and it's a day and night story. Of course, there is racism on the East Coast. I don't want to make it seem as if there's not. But most Indian visitors who come to the East Coast actually are able to use their Indian status to distinguish themselves 
from, for example, African Americans. So if you're a dark skinned person, if you're trying to get a hotel room in, you know, New York or Chicago, or even worse, if you're in the American South, right, of course, your skin color plays against you. But if you're able to position yourself as being from India, you're seen differently. And, and many Indian visitors were, you know, s- treated with great respect and honored and welcomed in a way that they just weren't on the West Coast. So geography plays a very important and interesting role. In fact, coming back to the turban, you know, on the West Coast, turbans became this flashpoint where, you know, white racists would attack people wearing turbans. On the East Coast, there are cases of African-Americans who put on turbans in order to pass as Indian, right, and avoid racism. So the turban's good on the East Coast, bad on the West Coast, right? It's just a stupidity <laughs> of racism. Uh, so geography is a, a key factor. But then, you know, if you look at gender or sexuality, if you look at caste, if you look at class, if you look at region, there are many different sto- intertwined stories of the Indian American experience. That's part of what made it so fun to write the book. And there's a spiritual dialogue going on, especially in this period, too, back and forth between Americans who are looking at India. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, yes, of course. So perhaps the most famous uh, point of connection here is between uh, uh, folks like Emerson and Thoreau, who are enamored with ancient Indian epics, right, on the one hand, and then figures like, uh, say, a Swami Vivekananda, right, who comes to the U.S. from India ter- uh, at the turn of the century with this mission of bridging the best of the West and the East. So you have this, you know, there's, I don't know, what is that now, 40, 50 years in there between the days of Emerson and Thoreau in the late 19th and early 20th century, you have uh, across those 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 generations really a very persistent interest in bringing sort of the wisdom of the East, right? Whether that's Hinduism or Buddhism or something even beyond religion, you know, they often it's it's from the American perspective seen as a form of philosophy, bringing that wisdom to the United States and helping Americans live better uh, because of it. And, you know, it's, it's sometimes it's easy to write those connections off as some form of essentializing or um, some form of appropriation. And I think there's good reason to be skeptical before celebrating those links. Uh, you know, for one thing, many figures, uh, even someone like an Emerson or Thoreau, who really did read widely in, the, in you know, certain classic um, Hindu texts, for example, Buddhist texts as well, you know, they got a lot wrong. There were many things that they misinterpreted, um, you know, in one way or another. With that said, you know, the more I read into those connections, the more I was struck by how uh, often respectful they were of the complexities that were being discussed and how often American figures really genuinely tried to learn from a figure like a Swami Vivekananda. There was a very earnest effort not just to appropriate or to exoticize, but to really understand. And, you know, in our day and time when, you know, there's so many new divides between people, whether based on religion or nationality or culture, um, I think it's actually really important to recognize and to appreciate efforts in the past where people have earnestly tried to reach across those divides. Now, the second term you pick out to discuss here is caste, which is this profoundly loaded concept, again, like Indian, and, and applicable in looking both at the United States and, and at India. So tell us how you understand that. Well, the first thing I'll say about caste is that it's neither an Indian word uh, nor, of course, an American word. Uh, it comes from a Portuguese term, and it's applied uh, in a very blunt and unwieldy fashion to at least two very different forms of social identity in South Asia. Um, one way to, to look at it is to use the words jati and varna. Um, jati comes from, uh, from words for birth and varna uh, from words for color, although it can mean other things as well. And these are two very different um, social identities that are often lumped under the category of caste. So varna is the way many Americans today would understand caste. It's a fourfold division of society with Brahmins at the top and Shudras at the bottom, and then even below Shudras, those that have historically been called untouchables and today are often called Dalits. Uh, the Varna is the way many Americans have seen it now and in the past, but Jati is just as important. Uh, Jati is, you know, uh, oh, loosely put, uh, a, a way of marking who marries whom. 
And in, and in India today, as in, in the past, um, there's a strong division between different jatis. Uh, by many measurements, there's hundreds of different jatis. And so when, when Europeans come into India and they're trying to make sense of the complexity of the land, um, you know, the, one of the things they do is they label things in an effort to control them. And in the word caste actually becomes very important, um, not just because of what it helps Europeans understand about India, but often because of what it allows them to misunderstand. And so they're able to, for example, assume that caste is a much more rigid system than in fact it was. And in that assumption, they actually help rigidify it. So the British are famous for their censuses and going around and counting everyone, making everyone identify as who they are. Uh, and there's a good body of, of historical literature that looks at the impact of just asking people what caste they belong to, forcing them to choose, forcing them to rank in hierarchy, who's above, who's below, right? And then according privileges to certain castes and not to others. Right? The British uh, are very big at, at ranking and at naming. Uh, and of course, you know, they rank themselves the highest. Um, that system gets uh, all embedded in the, in the very word caste. Then what happens is that it gets taken and used in other parts of the world. And the U.S. is, a, I think, in some ways the most interesting case because when caste comes to the U.S., um, it comes packed into the complexities of American life. And so you get a variety of different analogies that try to describe what caste means in America. You have abolitionists who use caste as a way to attack American racism, often in the wake of slavery. So there's an effort for Frederick Douglass and many other abolitionists denounce caste in the North, right? Um, in order to say, look, it's not enough to end slavery itself. We also have to end all other forms of racism. And caste is a useful term in that endeavor. Um, it also becomes very important to people struggling against racism uh, later on in U.S. history. So it's not just at the moment of abolition, but all the way up through into the 20th century. You have many different folks who are trying to forge these connections between race and caste. And in India itself, uh, you get debates between, uh, well, perhaps most famously, between a figure like Dr. Uh, Bhimra Ramji Ambedkar, who's uh, probably the most renowned leader of those once known as untouchable, again, often now called Dalits. Um, Ambedkar comes to the U.S. and studies at Columbia, learns quite a bit about American society. And he claims that really, if you want to try to understand American racism, the best analogy to use is caste in India. Whereas many other Indian figures, uh, for example, Gandhi, will say, well, really, American racism is equivalent to British imperialism. Right. And so all of Indians are under the control of of the racist British. So you have this race caste analogy being contrasted with a race empire analogy. And what's the, what's the kind of the big takeaway point for me, just as we were talking about with Indian, what I find so compelling and important is to recognize how the very words we use can become employed in in these struggles for power. Right. And 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 in the shaping of these democratic aspirations, the question that is always asked in all democracies, of course, is who's included and who's not. Right. If democracy is about power going to the people, who are the people that are going to be included? Is it um, is it just wealthy white men? Is it all white men? Is it white men and black men? Is it women, too? Is it et cetera, et cetera? You have to keep asking the question of who is going to be included. And caste, of course, is a way of deciding that. And caste is all about marking and measuring who's in and who's not. And so when, when people are debating back and forth what caste means between the U.S. and India, what they're really arguing about is the very nature of their democracy. Now, there's an interesting shift that you note, you know, and you mentioned this earlier, um, at the beginning of this country's uh, sort of independent period, basically most Americans were sympathetic to British imperialism. But starting in the interwar period, that really starts to shift. How does that shift and what does it look like? It's a, it, it's, it's a slow process and it's a process that comes about through tremendous struggle. Um, there is an active propaganda battle fought in the United States between agents of the British government and those who are aligned with various strands of the uh, struggle for independence. Um, so, you know, the British government pays to send spies to the United States. There's some of the quirkiest characters in the book 
Um, and they also lavish funds on any Americans who will speak up in defense of the British Raj, perhaps most famously Catherine Mayo and her bestseller Mother India, which you know goes out of its way to um, talk about many of the terrible things in Indian society, many of which or, you know were rightly called out as as major problems that needed to be addressed. But her solution is to say, well, the British imperialists are doing their best to try to overcome these inequities, and so we need to defend the British Empire. On the other end of the spectrum, you have a range of of um, Indian Americans and supportive America and, and you know su- supportive white Americans and other Americans who are coming together to try to forge some sort of um, anti-colonial uh, propaganda movement in the U.S. And one of the things I found really interesting looking at at that struggle is that it really does cut across the ideological spectrum. So. Most most readers, I think, will be familiar with the growing popularity of Gandhi. You know, it won't come as a surprise that Gandhi becomes a very well-known figure in the United States in the 1920s and 1930s, and he helps generate greater sympathy uh, for the Indian cause. But there are many other figures in in the in the U.S. and many other struggles from the Gutter re- uh, Revolution, which was an, an explicitly violent revolt. That was uh, a really a global movement, but that had very strong roots in, on on the American West Coast during the First World War. To um, a figure like a J.J. Singh, um, who's uh, one of the most prominent Indian Americans, a Sikh American businessman, who um, has strong networking ties with a variety of influential American figures, and is able to pull together this strong uh, India lobby. Right, which pulls in, you know, um, journalists like Henry Luce or um, his wife, the, uh, the p- political figure Claire Booth Luce, or um, you know, uh, writers and professors, and uh, a lot of labor unions become active. Um, so over time, more and more Americans are pulled onto the side of supporting Indian independence. But it, it's a struggle. Mm. And then. Suddenly in 1947, not suddenly, but if you perhaps if you weren't paying attention, suddenly in 1947, India is independent. And this coincides mm. um, with the beginning of the Cold War. So what do U.S.-Indian relations look like during the Cold War? Mm. Uh, that's a great question. Um, maybe we should start with, with one very important figure. So, you know, this, this is my, my book overall is definitely an effort to move away from the sort of great man theory of history. You know, I, um, it, there are many, many different figures in this book that play an important role and many social forces that are at play that shape the context in which those people live. With that said, there are certainly some figures that played an outsized role in history. And one of those was Jawaharlal Nehru, India's first prime minister. And Nehru um, has a, a very important role to play in shaping um, the foreign policy of independent India, uh, and his relationship to the U.S. is absolutely fascinating. Um, I, so for, in October 1949, Nehru comes to the U.S. and speaks at a joint session of the U.S. Congress, um, and he, he makes this really interesting speech where he basically says, you know, that our, our independence struggle, you know, our revolution is not, it's not done yet. Um, it's not done yet because we gained political freedom but um, we haven't achieved, and the term he uses is economic progress. We don't have the economic progress that we need so that everyone in India can have enough food on their table, right? Can have a good home to live in, etc. Now you might think, okay, uh, you know, this is a message that will resonate well in a country like the U.S., which is so often, you know, consumed with uh, visions of material progress. What's wrong with saying we need economic progress? Well, of course, it's 1949. The Cold War is already firmly, uh, you know, a pl- uh, you know, at play, um, and many of those American congressmen are very suspicious that when Nehru talks about the need for economic progress, really what he's talking about is the need for state planning um, and for more government intervention in the economy, uh, which is in fact true. You know, Nehru um, believes strongly that the route to India's well-being goes through heavy state in investment and involvement in planning the economy and particularly moving towards industrialization. Um, and he's very aware that this is not in line with how uh, the United States sees the world. 
he has these amazing letters. He, he writes one to his sister, Vijayalakshmi Pandit, who is herself a very important figure in the book. She's the first uh, Indian ambassador to the U.S. Uh, and Mexico, actually, and also plays an important role in the founding of the United Nations. And Nehru writes to her and, and tells her, so, says something like he, that, you know, that there's this the tug of war going on on the globe. And that all in all, he says, you know, he leans more towards Russia than to the U.S., right? Um, Soviet Union than towards the U.S. But he says not always, um, because Nehru is also a staunch Democrat who believes in free elections. He believes in freedom of the press, uh, freedom of speech. And so he um, he tries to chart a middle course, right? Very famously, he champions a policy called non-alignment, right? The goal is to neither be subsumed under the control of the United States and its allies, nor become part of the Soviet bloc. Right? He wants to chart his own path, very famously. And to a remarkable degree, he manages to do that um, while gaining a lot of um, support and aid from both sides. Uh, maybe I'll say one more one more thing. This is a, a whole chapter in the book, and I, um, I don't want to uh, take up too much of our time, but uh, in terms of aid, um, there's a really interesting story here about different kinds of American aid to India. You know, so when India emerges from British rule, it's an intensely poor country. Um, and it needs, it needs a lot of support from the outside world. The question is, well, what form should that support take? And a lot of American aid to India comes in the form of just huge shipments of food, right? Massive amounts of food. Um, that are used to try to stave off famine. But there's also an effort to, um, to, uh, achieve uh, a, an approach known as community development, um, which is more of a grassroots bottom-up approach in which rather than outsiders coming in and just giving stuff to poor people, you empower people on the local level to become agents of their own social change. Um, it's an approach that resonates very strongly with the American ambassador at the time, gets a lot of American support. American experts come to India to try to pursue this. And it, it cuts against, in some ways, the standard narrative we have of these kinds of relationships, because you get these, you know, wealthy American technocrats who are coming to India, and at least to some degree, saying, we're not the answer. The answer is actually going to come from Indian villages themselves. And I say to some degree, because there are problems with community development, um, you know, as I discuss in the book, uh, you know, there are blindnesses in terms of caste in particular and other um, uh, ways in which the Indian village was not the ideal society that many of these American, uh, you know, technocrats hoped that it could be, but at least it's an alternative to just dumping large amounts of grain in India. Mm. Now there's a, there's a third vocabulary term that you, you delve into deeply. And it's a word that has colonial origins that I, I think the, it's safe to say the majority of Americans are probably unaware of. It's the word thug. Where does it come from, and why are you looking so closely at it? Okay, so uh, yeah, I think you're right. Most people don't know that the word thug actually comes from colonial India, uh, and it comes from a very particular moment in time. This is the uh, 1830s, 1840s, a moment in time in which the British Raj is being consolidated Right. You know, the British don't arrive in India and suddenly take over the entire place. It's a slow process um, with lots of fits and starts and bumps. And this is one of those moments where the empire is trying to expand, trying to pull in outlying areas. And it needs a myth uh, that can explain and justify what it's doing. Right. And the myth is that there are these bands of criminals right, called thugs who have these secret societies in which they plot to rob people and often ritually murder them. Uh, there, there is some, I think, quite thin evidence that some of this actually existed. There are books you will find that de defend the idea that that thuggy, right, which is the term that's often used, did in fact exist. Uh, my own reading of the record is that to at least a very significant degree, this is an imperial invention that's used to justify British rule. Now, the word thug then gets picked up by Americans. First, Americans who are writing about India. So my favorite example is Mark Twain, uh, who uh, comes, you know, visits India, writes um, in both of his, his major travelogues quite extensively about his time in India. 
Um, and Twain has some remarkably fascinating things to say about thugs, in which he basically uses the idea of the thug to uh, hold up a mirror to, uh, to the worst of, of British imperialism. The Twain's complicated on, on empire. He's, uh, you know, he kind of plays both sides, at least in the British case in India. But overall, he is an anti-imperialist, and he is critical of the way that the thug is used to justify British rule. Uh, and then slowly, imperceptibly at first, but with growing strength over time, the word starts to be imported into the U.S. and used to apply not to this strange band of ritual killers in India, but to everyday common criminals, right, so-called thugs, in the American context. And for a while, the word is used in the U.S. to basically refer to anybody who's seen as a, you know, as a particular kind of a criminal. But then, of course, in uh, the 80s, really the 90s, the word becomes reinscribed in, a, in a, an equally racialized context. So it's a racial term at its origins, right? The British are using it to denounce these dangerous Indians. And then in the 90s, of course, it becomes racialized in the U.S. Right, um, through certain narratives of crime and, and through hip-hop. Right? And so you get... Uh, Tupac Shakur, right, um, forming a group called Thug Life. You get Thuggish Ruggish Bone by Bone Thugs and Harmony. This is what I was listening to when I was growing up, you know, in the in the early nineties. Um, and you know, you get a certain glorification of Thug Life, which uh, is actually really rich and interesting to grapple with. You know, my brother was a hip hop artist, and so this sort of grew up with the these distinctions really mattering between say the thug and the gangster you know this these are the days of culture wars when so-called gangster rap is being attacked and um you know you you get um you know people uh you know like Calvin Butts the famous um pastor coming out and denouncing the thug rapper um but i always i always saw the thug and the gangster as different the thug is a more authentic figure um, who isn't in it for the glory and the fame, but rather is really expressing some kind of profound grappling with the challenges of living at a time of profound inequality and racism. Um, so what I, what I try to do in that chapter is to use this really remarkable history of the word thug, how it starts in colonial India, comes to the U.S. as a generic term, and then is later racialized, to use that to frame the last few chapters of the book that that um, that look at in some ways the flowering of Indo-American connections, right? The you know since the end of the Cold War, you have this incredible warmth between India and the U.S. In most cases, you know, economically in terms of foreign policy, etc. And and democracy is in some ways flourishing in both countries, and yet at the same time, that question I posed earlier still haunts both countries: who's being included and who's being excluded. And who's in and who's not. And the thug is still outside, right? Still being prevented from fully accessing democracy in both countries. Now, as part of that shift and the, the flowering of Indo-American relations, there's, there's a shift that undergoes um, US, econo- or U.S. economic ties with India. And it really starts to take off in the 1970s. Could you outline a bit of that for us? There's a couple driving forces here that that dramatically change the economic relationship between the U.S. and India. As I said earlier, in the early decades after India's independence, that relationship is really about aid. How much aid is the U.S. going to give? What form will that aid take? Right? The U.S. is in a position of power. India is the receiver. That starts to shift, and it starts to shift in part because of changing foreign policy. Right? It's the Cold War. Uh, it changes in dynamic and then eventually ends. Uh, and also as, as India itself shifts in terms of its domestic policies, the Indian state starts to roll back in the late eighties, starts to roll back, um, the, you know, so-called license permit quota Raj, right. Starts to open up the economy to liberalize the economy. There becomes more opportunities for, uh, business collaborations. Now it's easy to celebrate the story. At least um, in certain quarters, you can frame it as a, a success story in which the Indian economy is able to take off, right? In which U.S. India uh, um, ties to India, um, you know, are able to develop the the you know technology industries. You get, um, you know, 
wonderful anecdotes, like um, one of the ones I, I say, uh, you know, repeat in the book has to do with Jack Welch, the famous CEO of GE, who goes to India in 1989. Um, he's there in order to try to um, sell GE stuff to, I think, particularly aircraft engines, if I remember right, he wants to sell them to India. Um, but the Indian government says, okay, you know, we'll buy this aircraft engines, but we want you to buy, um, you know, millions of dollars worth of software from us. You know, we're becoming a powerhouse in software. We want to sell you this software. And of course, India um, rapidly becomes a major um, source of so-called BPO, business process outsourcing. So it's software, it's a call centers, it's um, many different ways in which the Indian economy grows by servicing international companies. As I said, it's easy to celebrate this story. And I think there are some reasons to celebrate it. There's certainly some people that benefit tremendously. But part of what I try to do in the book is to probe who benefits and who doesn't. Um, because there are losers in this story. Um, you know, from the American perspective, there's tremendous pushback against outsourcing. People lose their jobs as those jobs go overseas. Um, but also within India itself, there, I think, are very important questions to be asked about who has benefited and to the degree to which a lot of the wealth that's been produced as a result of the liberalization of the economy and these sorts of foreign ties, um, that that wealth has been really concentrated in relatively few hands and hasn't been able to affect poverty as much as, as, much as it should mm. have. So then you conclude by looking at Bollywood and U.S. cinema. And there's a lot that can be said here. But what does this tell us in specific about these two countries, as well as this broader struggle, the ongoing struggle for democracy? Yeah, uh, I appreciate you asking that question, because th this chapter was so fun to write. And I'm a big fan of movies. It's easy for me to just start to talk immediately about the movies. Um, and, you know, I, I'm sure I will at some point soon. But I, I do think it's important to hold on to the reason I chose to conclude this book with cinema. Uh, it's not just because it's fun or, um, you know, because there are so many both Hollywood films and Indian films that have in one way or another linked the two countries. The reason I chose to end with those films is because I found them a, a an especially unique and, and rich window on the struggle for democracy in a way that it's connected these two countries. And some of that is just because film is itself such a powerful window on society. But a lot of it, I think, is also because film is a medium that is based on the dream, right? It's at its best, I think, it's a, a medium that is sort of steeped in this, this magic of possibility of what could be, right? Um, particularly, actually, films, you know, produced in the so-called Bollywood genre. And I'm, 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 a, I'm, I'm ambivalent a bit on the term Bollywood because, of course, at its worst, when people, especially in the U.S., talk about Bollywood, it can make it seem as if Indian movies are just sort of a shadow of Hollywood, whereas, in fact, you know, there are more films produced in India every year than there are in the U.S., and um, the Indian film industry is not just located in, in Mumbai, right? It's, it, there are many different film industries in India, and the films don't all follow the convention that we associate with Bollywood. So anyway, the term Bollywood is tricky, and I, I try to be careful about that term. On the other hand, I do think that the Bollywood genre, the, the kind of film we associate with Bollywood, is an especially good embodiment of why I uh, chose to end the book with, with, with film. And that's because of this potential to allow people to dream about something that doesn't yet exist and to put themselves in that dream. So I think ultimately democracy in both the U.S. and India is a dream. And it's a dream that is all too easy for us to assume has been fulfilled. You know, um, in the U.S., we listen to Martin Luther King give his I Have a Dream speech every year. And often the way that story is framed is, well, you know, the civil rights movement brought us the dream. We're living the dream, right? We've achieved the dream. And the same is true in India. In both places, it's very easy to celebrate democracy as something that has been achieved. Whereas if, if, I, if there's just one take-home message for me from this book, it's that the people that have made our democracies as great as they are, right? The people, the heroes of the story that have brought us where we are today are precisely the people who refuse to be satisfied with democracy as it stood in their day, right? If, if across history, we had people that were only going to stand up and say, oh, aren't our country so great? 
we never would have progressed, right? The true patriot, the true hero is the person who's willing to say, we, we can do better. We should do better. We need to do better. This isn't democracy yet. We're close. We're getting closer, but we have more to do. And the films really capture, I think, the way in which democracy is and always has been a dream. Great. I have uh, just two last questions for you. And this first one, um, this is as much because I just finished um, reading Daniel Imrevar's How to Hide an Empire. So the Imperial is just lurking in my head right now. But I'm curious whether uh, South Asians, especially in the era of imperialism, sort of took note of the fact that the United States accumulated a great number of overseas possessions, notably Hawaii and Puerto Rico, and then one of their relative neighbors, the Philippines? And if so, what they articulated about this? Well, that's a great, great question. Uh, I'll answer it. But first, I should just say Daniel Moore is uh, an old friend of mine. And in fact, when we were in graduate school, we uh, realized that we were both at the same time working on this issue of race caste comparison, which, you know, when you're a graduate student learning that someone else is working on the same topic is actually quite scary. Uh, you know, you're worried, about, you're worried about getting scooped by someone else. And so we, we quickly communicated and were relieved when we realized that we had this strong common interest, but we were really taking it in different directions. So, you know, we've, we've continued to stay in, in good contact. Uh, I, yeah, I, I think the, the question you asked is actually a really important one, uh, because it comes back to this issue, uh, that we started off with talking about the word Indian and we, we got into in terms of caste and thug as well, which is the, the power, but also the dangers of analogy. So there were um, certain um, South Asian figures who wrote about American possessions overseas. Um, Lala Lajpat Rai, for example, who is a very famous figure in India, is a very prominent anti-colonial freedom fighter, came to the U.S. twice. The second time, he stays for several years during the First World War. Lajpat Rai writes this fascinating book about the U.S. in which um, he's uh, very, very astute and critical of many problems in the U.S. Uh, race, for example, he, he has a, a very interesting chapters on racism in the U.S. He's uh, close friends with W.B. Du Bois, other leading African-American figures at that time. So he's, he's not, uh, you know, he's not one to just uh, presume that the U.S. is this perfect country. And yet, when he writes on the Philippines, he has his blinders on and he praises uh, the American approach to the Philippines really as a foil so that he can then criticize British, um, you know, uh, involvement in India. So his, his desire to criticize British imperialism really blinds him to the dark side of American imperialism. And that sadly is, is often the case. Uh, I, you know, many different figures um, turn a blind eye to certain forms of injustice when they're trying to emphasize a different injustice in the world. And, you know, I, I think it's a caution in a tale, really, about um, the importance of building solidarities with other anti-colonial struggles, which Lajpa Rai himself did, in, as I said, in the case of African-Americans, but not so with, with the Philippines. It's also a cautionary tale uh, for, you know, people like me that spend a lot of time pontificating about things. You know, you, you have to try your best to be humble. Right. Because, um, you know, and I, 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 as you know, every time you write a book, it, it's a little terrifying because you're you're talking about so many different important things and you're bound to get some things wrong. So I think, you know, my my lesson for for uh, anyone who's interested in commenting on these sorts of complicated issues is don't be a, don't be afraid to do it. You know, I, I applaud someone like Lajput Rai for for caring enough to even write about what the U.S. is doing in the Philippines at a time when many Americans weren't paying any attention. Um, but, you know, the humility that we're all called to bring to all of our lives, I think we need even more of that when we're dealing with, with countries that are far away. Mm. So my last question to you, and, and hopefully it's not um, hopefully it's not too soon after a book has come out, but I'm just curious, uh, what are you thinking of working on next? Uh, you know, I... I'm, I'm kind of a, a restless person in, in some ways. And so it's, it's not too soon. I, I'm, I always like to dive right into the next thing. So got two projects at different points in the process. So I have a book that I've written about my older brother. I mentioned earlier, he was a hip hop artist. He, he was a mixed race man. His father was from Nigeria. We had the same white American mother. And he was the victim of a racially 
unhinged crime in Los Angeles in 1994. He was attacked by a group of white men. He ended up losing his right eye. I grew up seeing this as a kind of, um, kind of you know, as 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 a as a, as a hate crime, right? These were these were neo-Nazi racists. But when I when I looked into the police record and I interviewed some of the folks involved, the story became more complicated, and it it became um, really a, a window to rethink his whole life. He he passed away in a car accident in two thousand three, and um, lived a really rich and and and, and a remarkable life. He was a hip hop artist, a screenwriter, um, and you know, and his life really embodied a lot of the complexities surrounding race in contemporary America. So I have a book about him that is really a memoir, uh, as well as a history book about his life and about what it says about race in, in the United States, sort of, uh, you know, in, since 1965 or so. Uh, and then I, I also have started research on a book about the, the American civil rights movement. Uh, a lot of my earlier works have touched on what you might call a sort of classic phase of the civil rights struggle, you know, 1950s, 60s, etc. Um, but I've long wanted to dive deeper in, and I, I've become really fascinated with this, the, the history of the Highlander Folk School, which was this really remarkable uh, place that brought uh, together a lot of different civil rights activists for workshops one of the nerve centers of the civil rights movement, um, definitely not the nerve center, but one of them. And, and there's some really remarkable records that exist that document these workshops and allow us to hear from activists themselves the kinds of questions they were posing and the kinds, the kinds of issues they were grappling with. So I want to use that story of that school and of these meetings, these workshops to approach the civil rights movement from a, from a new perspective. Those are um, both amazing projects, and I'm just a little envious of your output right now. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Well, I, I appreciate it very much, Seb. It's been a real pleasure. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. 